those on the platform. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, open with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. Alabama's Supreme Court has called for the removal of the Ten Commandments from one of their state courthouses. This is one of the few remaining state courthouses in America that still has the Ten Commandments posted. And the Supreme Court has ruled that they have to go. Uh, Down in Phoenix, there's a memorial to someone I have never heard of. I don't know what they did, but on that memorial is the Ten Commandments. And uh, the ACLU is currently suing the state of Arizona to have that removed uh, because they don't want it publicly displayed. They don't want the Ten Commandments publicly displayed. Every school in America used to display the Ten Commandments. Now it's illegal to display the Ten Commandments in our schools. Every courthouse in America used to display the Ten Commandments. Now it's illegal to display the Ten Commandments, these ten simple rules of life etched on two tablets of stone have earned the onus of mankind. Men don't want to be reminded of God's law and God's authority. It's something that disturbs them profoundly. It's also the most powerful weapon that we have in the work of evangelism. And so I want to think about this with you. I've been preaching the last two sermons I preached, and today and tonight, all of the sermons that I've been preaching have been, if not directly, at least in some way, related to going back to school. And this one is not an exception. I want to think with you students that are going back to school how you're going to deal with your peers, and whether you're going to deal with them at all. Uh, But again, as in all the sermons I've been preaching, there is a broader application, and it's not limited to students. Amen. I want to help students. I want those of you that are going back, we're going to pray for students at the conclusion of this service. Uh, Those of you that you're going back, you're going back uh, to one of the greatest uh, harvest fields available. There's no better place for revival than school. You have young minds that haven't hardened in sin. You have uh, questioning minds. You have a wide open door to minister the gospel. It's just a tremendously fertile ground. And uh, I want to help you with uh, dealing with that. Uh, But as I said, this this is also for everyone here that has a burden for souls. And even if you don't have a burden for souls, hopefully you'll have one by the time I'm through. I've entitled this sermon, Take Two Tablets and Call Me When You're Morning. And uh, that's what we need to do, is give them the gospel and the law. Amen. Let's read Romans 7, beginning with verse 7. It says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity of the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. 
And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Uh, and I pray that this morning you will lay hold of hearts thereby. You will touch us with the truth, God, of your word. I pray that uh, you'll cause each one of us to examine our hearts before you, Lord. Uh, those that are not saved would come into a place of, of wise fear of the Lord uh, and would uh, not harden their hearts, God, but would respond to your offer of grace. Uh, those of us that are saved and walking in this incredible grace uh, would not take it for granted, God, but we would pursue not only holiness, but we would also pursue the souls of men, Lord, uh, that we would take uh, very much to heart the burden of the lost uh, and the reality of their judgment and death if we do not intervene. God, I pray uh, that you'll help us this morning come to grips with the issues. Uh, I pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, uh, Amen. The first thing that I want you to come to grips with is that people don't need Jesus. They have cars. They have nice homes. They have Nike sneakers, they have Xboxes, they have Coke, they have Twinkies, they have The Matrix, they have MTV, they have parties, they have money, they have friends. What do they need Jesus for? And I will tell you right now that that is perhaps the most profound issue that confronts any of us that want to win people to the Lord, is that as far as this generation of Americans goes, what do they need Jesus for? They don't have any need to offer them a better life in Jesus doesn't even relate. What do I need a better life for? Life is cool. Life is good. I have everything I want. I'm not looking for spiritual truth. I'm not looking to be made a spiritual individual. I'm happy... The way I am. Peace of mind, joy, fulfillment. I'm pretty happy. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty fulfilled. But you know what? If I'm not, I'll just, uh, I'll just drink my problems away or I'll just snort my problems away. They've got Prozac for me. They've got therapy. They've got all kinds of things and entertainment. I can just bury myself. I don't have to worry about heartache and difficulty. There's ways around that in life. And so we have a generation that feels no need of a better life in Jesus Christ. And to offer them a better life is in fact a little bit misleading. Many times we tell them Jesus can give you a better life. Uh, uh, and they think, they interpret that. You know, and I think a better life is, you know, being holy, the blessing of God, the power of God, a relationship with God. They think a better life is more money. A hotter girlfriend, a better job, a nicer car, 
maybe an escape hatch from some problems that have in fact surfaced in their life. And so a better life promises all of these things to them that in truth the gospel doesn't promise. The gospel does say, yeah, God will bless you. God will help you. God will enlarge you. God will hold you up. God will do wonderful things for you. All of that is true. But there's corresponding truth of that. That uh, along with that, you'll get persecuted. People won't like you. You'll not be popular anymore. Uh, uh, you, You may end up with lots more problems than you started with before you got saved. And so to offer them this better life is perhaps to mislead them and may in fact contribute to to the difficulty we have of retaining converts. Because they come in looking for this better life uh, and what the better life is is demands that are placed on their heart, their character, their soul, their spirit, accountability, things they never had to deal with before. They got saved because they wanted to experiment with this better life. Well, let's see. Let's see what God will do for me. Let's see what God will do for me. They come to God uh, not seeking forgiveness of sin and deliverance from judgment to come, but to get the goodies from God. Well, sometimes the goodies come and sometimes they don't. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. God gives goodies to sinners, which makes a lot of us want to backslide. (laughs) Bothered David, why do the wicked prosper? My feet almost slipped out from underneath me. The better life of Christianity isn't what sinners think when you say uh, the better life. Even to offer them forgiveness of sin without bringing them to grips with the reality of sin falls short of, of being able to connect. Because the truth of the matter is most people today don't believe they're sinners. This is a generation, you've got to understand, this is a generation that has no moral reference points. When I was a hippie, I still knew that certain things were evil. Even as a hippie, I knew that, you know, being a queer was uncool. It just wasn't right. It wasn't normal. It wasn't natural. And, you know, hippies are all into natural. And I looked at that and said, that ain't natural. Even as a hippie, I knew it was wrong to steal. I did it, but I knew it was wrong. As a hippie, I knew that there were certain moral boundaries. I stand before you and declare today, this is a generation that has none of those moral reference points. They don't, honestly, honestly, they don't believe there's anything wrong with anything I just said. They don't believe there's anything wrong with lying. Their president doesn't. Why shouldn't they? They don't believe there's anything wrong with theft. They don't believe there's anything wrong with using God's name in vain. There's nothing wrong with these things. They think you're weird to suggest that fornication is wrong. They honestly, honestly do not have a reference point that tells them this is wrong. So you go and you say you're a sinner. And they say, no, I'm not. I'm just like everybody else. We're all cool, man. And this has crept into the Christian world. According to the Barna Research Group, 66% of born-again teens surveyed in the last three months lied to a parent or a teacher. 55% had sex. 55% had cheated on an exam. And 20% had either gotten drunk or used drugs. Born-again Christians. Because as far as their reference points go, they can't even identify sin. Sin isn't on their radar. You say, Jesus can forgive you of sin. Well, I don't need that. I'm not a sinner. 
I'm in good shape. You know, when Marilyn Manson is their idol, you know, when the insane clown posse gets up and sings, let's kill your mother, and they say, that sounds like a good idea. It's very clear that they have no reference points. What's wrong with killing your mother? If you don't like her, kill her. We laugh, but there's an alarming rate of patricide, fatricide, and matricide going on around here. Kids are bumping off their parents way too much. That's why I won't let Nick have a gun. (laughs) It's too much insanity. And you look around you, folks. I was just reading in a book just this week. Uh, and she's, the, the author is talking about hookups. I'm going to talk a little bit about that tonight. But here, this, this, this whole hookup reference point is we don't even need a relationship anymore. All we do is hook up, have sex, and go our different ways. And this is the way teens and college students relate anymore. They don't believe in dating. They have quotes. I read quotes from college students and dating just costs a lot of money. Dating just gets you emotionally entangled. Dating just brings a ball and chain. Let's just go buy all that, have sex, which since that's what we're all after anyhow, and then move on. This is the way they think. This is fine. They don't see any moral repercussions to that lifestyle. Beyond all that, kids today just aren't interested in religion. You know, I read and read, oh, they're all into spiritual things. They're not into spiritual things. They're, they're into spiritual justifications. They're looking for a spirituality that makes no demands, that really doesn't change them at all, but they can, you know, throw it at their girlfriends to sound cool. Most kids today, it's unbelievable how many kids on the streets today that I talk to are born again. They're all born again. They're all Christians. What they have is a meaningless Christianity to fend off Jesus freaks like me. They're not real interested in hearing the gospel. And if they're not if they're not saved, then they're too pagan to care. They don't want to hear it. I don't have time for Jesus. I don't need a religion. Uh, I don't need philosophy. I don't need anything. What they want is here and now. They aren't worrying about eternity. As far as they're concerned, there's nothing to worry about. They're all as good as the next guy. And life is good. I'm going to heaven just because I'm a good person. And that's the way people think today. So how? How? The million-dollar question is how... Do you put Jesus in the face of such apathy and such cynicism and such materialism and such self-satisfaction? How do you even present Jesus to that kind of a jaded audience? How do you bring people to the realization that they truly need Jesus? I believe the key to this question is the law. The key to this question is bringing them to grips with the reality of their personal sin. Bringing into sharp focus in their mind the reality that they are first and foremost sinners before God. It's not about the goodies that God can give them. It's not even about the forgiveness that God can give them yet. It's about the sin in their life. Now, God has given us two primary tools to bring conviction into somebody's life. The first is the Holy Spirit. 
God has to get involved in this or nothing we do will work. You have to be prayed up. You have to be living for God. You have to have a resource of the Word of God in your heart that the Holy Spirit can use. And you have to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. You can't go out witnessing thinking, I'm just going to argue them into the kingdom of God. You won't. The Holy Spirit, a supernatural quantity, has to be introduced into the equation of our witness. And thank God, Jesus made very clear promise that he would get involved. In John 16, 8, it says, And when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's exactly what we need him to do. We need him to take our witness and convict them of true sin. Convict them of judgment to come. There's a consequence to this sin. And convict them that there's a better life than what they're living. This has to come through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is a sure promise. You don't have to work this up. You don't have to, you know, cut yourself with knives or burn a cat out on your front yard. You, all you have to do is believe God. If you're saved, you got the Holy Ghost, God will get involved. First John, uh, uh, chapter five, verse six says, it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. It is the Spirit that bears witness. And so you and I can go into a witness with confidence that if we give God the, the stuff to work with, he can bring the conviction home. The stuff to work with is the law. That's the tool that God has given us for the work of our witness. Paul in our text says he would not have known sin except by the law. He never could have identified sin. See, this is what I'm talking about. This is the perfect solution to, to the issue that I just addressed. How do you speak to a generation that has no reference points? You have to give them the reference points. The reference points are ten simple laws. Ten simple laws that no one can live. That no one does live. Jesus alone was sinless. Otherwise, everybody is guilty. He has given us the reference points of sin. And Paul says what sin does is it causes sin to be exceedingly sinful. It brings that weight of a burden on the heart of a sinner. It causes... Here Paul is talking about his own testimony. Here's a man that was in pursuit of God. Here's a man whose entire life revolved around God. But here comes the law. And as soon as the law is brought to bear on his life, he realizes, I'm a sinner. I wouldn't have known what it was to covet, except the law brought me face to face with my covetousness. It made my sin exceedingly sinful. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. The law is what brought us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. See, the law reveals the need of Christ. Without that awareness of sin, I may come, I may go to an altar, pray for a better life, but that hasn't brought me to Christ and it will not produce conversion. What produces conversion is the knowledge that I am a criminal in the court of God. A guilty criminal. Not one of these criminals that didn't do it. I know every criminal in all of our prisons never did anything. 
They're all there just because society hates them. But the truth of life is we're all guilty criminals. And the law makes us aware of that. Psalms 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It's the law that brings us to conversion. This is what is lacking in so much of Christianity today, uh, is no conversion. And that largely because when people come to Christ, they are coming to have their felt needs met, not to escape the wrath of God. The old saying is that you have to get sinners lost before you can get them found. And the truth of that is profound. We're many times afraid to offend. So we offer the benefits of salvation. And we say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But you know what? That's not really true. If you would get saved, God has a wonderful plan for your life. But right now, God's plan for your life is hell. Amen? It's not particularly a good plan for you. John Wesley said, before I can preach love, mercy, and grace, I must preach sin, law, and judgment. Before I can preach love, mercy, and grace, I must preach sin, law, and judgment. We've lost that in this generation. Charles Spurgeon said they will never accept grace until they tremble before a just and a holy law. Grace doesn't mean anything to you if you're not a dying sinner. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Sinners have to realize that they are the enemies of the all-powerful God. They are on the wrong team. They are in a bad place. They are standing in contradiction to a living God that has every intention of bringing them to judgment for their sin. And we know that they've all sinned because we know everyone has sinned. See, no one can squirm out of this. When you bring this down, there's nowhere to run. They can say, everybody sins. My point exactly. They can say, I'm no worse than the next guy. My point exactly. Everybody is on their way to hell without something happening in their life. So the law brings them to the recognition that they are a sinner personally. Personally, it identifies their sin. So you say to them, you say, have you ever lied? I'm not a sinner. I'm fine. I'm going to heaven because I'm a good guy. Have you ever lied? Okay, 99% of the people you talk to will admit to having lied. 1% because they're just trying to mess with your head will say they've never lied. What you have to do is say, you're a liar. <laughs> you just lied to me just now. Okay? And so you ask them, have you ever lied? And so the honest soul will say, of course I've lied. Everybody lies. Uh, maybe just a white lie. Maybe just a, a little twist of the facts. Have you ever lied? Well, yeah, I've lied. What does that make you? A liar. What by definition is a liar? Someone who has lied. You with me? Have you ever stolen? 
well, you know, everybody takes a little bit off their taxes, and everybody steals a few nails from the job, and yeah, sure, I've stolen a little bit. What does that make you? A thief. Guilty. A thief. What? But, you know, I don't do it habitually. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you do it habitually. If you've done it at all, you've done it, haven't you? You are guilty of it. And you, you can do it when you're ten. And then spend the rest of your life doing penance. Oh God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But it doesn't change the fact that you stole back here. And when you're 70 years old, you still stole and you're still a thief. By the fact that you stole. Hmm. Some of you are worrying. I can see you starting to dodge it. Have you ever lusted? Jesus said, if you so much as look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. You've already violated God's law. And the truth of the matter is, that works for women as much as it works for men. Have you ever lusted? Okay, ladies, so you've never lusted. We're, I must admit, the male species is rather ugly and hard to lust after. But have you ever lusted for your neighbor's pool? Or Martha Stewart's house? Or her quilts? Sometimes you look at women looking at house and garden and you wonder what they're looking at. Simmer down there, girl. Can I go get you some ice? You're steaming up there. (laughs) If you've ever lusted, you've committed adultery. What does that make you? Yeah, I'm not committing adultery now. Yeah, but you did. And therefore you are an adulterer. And so as you bring the law into their life, as you introduce them to the demands of the law, as you pin them with it, they by their own mouth must confess to their sin. This is very important. You can't just preach the law to them and say, thus says the law. You have to get them to say, this is what I've done. Otherwise, they come away from the experience saying, oh, those Christians, they're just holier than thou and they're calling everybody sinners. No, what you have to do is get the person to call himself a sinner. To acknowledge before you and before God Almighty that he is indeed a lying, thieving adulterer. Which isn't hard. You just talk to him a little. Once you have that, your next task is to put the fear of God in them. Because they have to recognize that God hates their sin. No, he's not a big, gentle daddy that says, Oh, those children of mine are so, so sinful. I I don't know what I'm going to do with them. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He's going to send them straight to hell. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. You go to hell. That's what God thinks of sin. Hebrews 9.27 is appointed for men to die once. And after this, the judgment. Now, if the judge is perfect, which God is, how will he judge sin? He has to judge it 
for what it is. What will he have to do? Because he is perfect justice, not a flawed justice like our justice. If he has to judge sin in perfection, if he has to contrast your sin, and let me back up just a moment here, because the truth of the matter is, uh, if you get someone to admit even one or two transgressions, they well, that's not so bad a crime. But if you really, really knew everything that was in their heart, you would recognize that they sin daily. The first and foremost commandment is you will love the Lord your God. And most people that aren't Christians don't love the Lord their God. They don't even give them a second thought. So most people violate the first and foremost commandment every day of their lives. So we're talking about judgment of sin that is ongoing in a lifetime. And God has to judge it. What's he going to do? What's he going to say to a liar or a thief or an adulterer? You're going to say, oh, don't worry about it. You'll do better next time. You're going down as a rabbit for the next life. Maybe if you get rabbit right, we'll let you grow into a holy cow. Then once you get holy cow right, we'll let you be a human again. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you die once and then you're judged. Amen? So Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. The wrath of God is against all ungodliness, no matter how trivial you may see it. God doesn't see it that way. Romans 2.5 says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So here we are sinning day in and day out. And what it's doing is accruing. Our rap sheet is growing. God's list of offenses is, in, is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the, what we're doing is we're storing up wrath, the Bible says. And so we have to bring a sinner to this recognition. You're storing up wrath every day that you live without God. Every day that you live contrary to the will of God, contrary to the law of God. You are storing up wrath. You're making your sentence that much more grievous. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says what you have to do is have a little wisdom when you start to realize that you're going to stand before God in judgment. Wisdom says, I should fear this. Any intelligent person would say, I don't want to stand before a perfectly holy God covered in sin. By my own mouth, condemning myself, I am a thief. I am a liar. I am an adulterer. What is a perfectly holy God going to do? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And the realization that we've been caught in our crimes and will pay full penalty of the law should make us to begin to look for a Savior. If we can get a person this far to recognize their sin and to recognize impending judgment because of their sin then we can make them the offer of grace. Because at this point, they should be ready to hear it, unless they're nuts. Obviously, the answer is the cross. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the sacrifice Jesus paid for us. Nothing else will do. No other religion even addresses the sin question. No other religion has any kind of resolution 
It recognizes the evil in man's heart, but it doesn't tell him what to do about it. Christ and Christ alone said, I've come to deal with a sin issue. I've come to pay a price so that sinners can be saved. No amount of psychology, no amount of guilt resolution will solve the sin issue. Amen. It's not a question of you feeling better about your sin. Amen. No judge in his right mind would say, well, you murdered somebody, but we can see that you've come to grips with it mentally, so we'll let you off. That's not the way we're we're talking about justice here. We're talking about sin being answered for uh, and no religion, no therapy, no other answer in the world exists for this problem. You are a sinner. You're going to stand before God, the judge. There's only one hope for you, the atonement of Jesus Christ. The recognition that he has taken your sins on his own heart. And truthfully, a look at the cross is a look at the way God looks at your sin. This is what you got coming. If you don't, let Jesus bear your sin. Now, because of the toning work, we're free to go. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, You being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. See, the wonderful reconciliation of the cross is meant to bring us into a right relationship with God so we're no longer slaves of sin. So we no longer have to fear falling into this sin that will damn our souls. We've been forgiven at an unbelievable price, redeemed and purchased back to God. See, the gospel is not about self-actualization. It's not about you feeling better about yourself. It's about putting you in a place where God can work with you now. It's about our death sentence being commuted by the intervention of Jesus Christ. It's about God's judgment being diverted from us. It's like the woman taken in the very act of adultery, dragged before the feet of Jesus, and uh, Jesus deals with these hypocrites that are around her, and uh, then speaks into her life and says, uh, uh, where are your accusers? And she looks around and she says, I have none. And Jesus says, now neither do I accuse you. I have commuted your crime. I am paying for your sin. And then he says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Here are the rocks that were your death sentence all around you. The reminder of what you would have coming to you if not for the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So don't forget the rocks. Don't forget the death. Don't forget what sin will produce in you. Go and sin no more. Go and let what Jesus has done for you produce true Christianity in your life. Amen. So here we have the law, the spirit, power of God working on the heart of the sinner, bringing them to the cross. And the only question that remains to be asked of everyone here today is, do you believe this? Do you believe, students, that every one of your classmates is on their way to hell if they're not saved? 
Do you believe that they are all sinners? It's hard to look at pretty little American people and say they're sinners. You know, a guy crawls out from under a bridge, you say, there goes a sinner. Somebody comes to school with their Nikes and their boombox and everything's cool. Do you really believe that they're sinners, that their life is in jeopardy? That they will be called before the bench of God and they will give an account for every sin. And they will be punished accordingly. And a perfect and a holy God who said, I didn't make you to live that way, will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you believe that? Because if you honestly believe that and you believe that the only hope for these people is the blood of Jesus Christ, then there's no way you can sit on your witness. There is no way you cannot tell them. There is no way you can just say, oh, go be thou warmed and fed, carry on in your sin, go to hell. It's nice knowing you. I really enjoyed the class of 2004. Can't do it. Not if you believe what I'm preaching. If you don't believe what I'm preaching, you need to get saved. If you do believe what I'm preaching, I don't see how your conscience can give you a moment's rest. You can't sit back idly and watch your friends go to their destruction. I know they don't want to hear it. I know they don't understand it. That's the whole point. They don't understand. They don't understand what jeopardy they're in. They don't understand how close they are to the flames of hell. Say, so they got a long life ahead of them. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know they won't get run over by a bus tomorrow? These people are one heartbeat away from hell. There's going to come a point in their life when God says, that's it, and He's going to stop the heart. It's going to stop beating. None of us have a clue when that's going to happen. But at that moment, we're either heaven bound or hell bound, right there. How can you live and ignore those around you and not question the welfare of their soul? Folks can breeze on down the highway of life. We do it all the time, don't we? We'll be driving along. This happened to me. We're driving along. We're just going with the flow of traffic. Everybody's doing the same speed. We're all doing 15 miles per hour over. But we're all doing it. And so it's okay, because we're all doing it. Must not be a problem. And we actually are happy with that explanation of things, with that perception. Everything's cool, man. We're all doing 70 and 55. This is cool. We're all cool. Then all of a sudden, the blue and reds come on. And every car in the line slows down. Because they're all guilty. Every one of them. None of them know which one's going to get pulled over. You know, obviously, the cop can't pull over all 20 cars. And so we all start praying against the next guy. Right? But the truth of the matter is, just the sudden confrontation with the law changed not only my behavior, but my attitude about the law. You know what? This could go very badly for me. If he doesn't pull somebody else over, I'm dead. And every person in the line has the exact same thought at the exact same time. The law stops him short. That's exactly what we're dealing with here. Everybody's cruising along. What's wrong with Brittany? What's wrong with Madonna? What's wrong with Ozzy? 
What's wrong with a lifestyle of perversion? What's wrong with fornication? What's wrong with drugs? What's wrong with a little fun? What's wrong with a little party? What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Everybody's so blasé about their sin until the law says, you're dead. I got you. Guilty as charged. They won't care if they're missing the good life of Christianity. That means nothing to them. They don't see it as a good life. What they'll care about is getting busted. That's what will make the difference in their minds. I'd like every heart, every head bowed, every eye closed, every heart open to God right now. There are some here today, and you're a criminal. In the court of God, you're a criminal. The law's been written, friend. You can't change it. There is no constitution of, America, uh, uh, constitution of heaven that you can amend. There's, there's no fancy footwork that you and the judicial system can do to change the law so it won't mean what it meant when they wrote it. God put it in stone. He wrote it with his finger so that nobody could change it. And he said, this is my law. This is the law that governs all of life. This is the way I created it. And this is the law by which I will judge it. And there are people here today and you live in constant chronic violation of the law. You do not love God with all your heart, all your, mo- all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. You do not keep his Sabbath holy. You do not refrain your lips from using the Lord's name in vain. You do lie. You do steal. You do murder in your heart. Jesus said if you hate your brother, you've murdered him. You commit all kinds of sins against God and you do it daily. And you think that it's fine because everybody else does it. You think, it's fine, it'll never come back to you. But friend of mine, Romans says, every time you sin, you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. It's going on the record, God is marking it, and He won't ignore it. And you, my friend, must come to grips with the fact that you, personally, are a sinner. You're on your way to hell. God's already decreed. Just We have laws in our country that say, if you do this, this is the fine. If you get caught doing this, this is the fine. This is what's going to happen. If you murder someone, you're going uh, to uh, die by lethal injection. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be this consequence. Well, God has already said, the wages of sin is death. Sin is going to bring execution. God will condemn you. And there's no way around the law of God because he's already written it. You can shake your fist. You can say it's unfair. You can say whatever you want. It won't change what exists. But God, in his mercy, the amazing thing is that the truth behind all of this is God put that law in place simply to awaken in us the reality that we are way, way far away from God. That we are sinners alienated from God and we desperately need a miracle. God, in His mercy, gave us the law. He could have just said, let them all go on sinning and go to hell. I don't care. Instead, He set before us clear warning and said, this is the way it is. And He went even further. The Bible says that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. That's incredible. 
But it is that blood of Jesus that He offers to you this morning. And as I read there in Galatians, it says that that blood will wash away all of the record of our sin. It will blot out the handwriting of ordinances that is against us. That it will erase the record of sin. It will tip over the scale that holds all of that wrath. Now it's empty. It's all gone. Where are your accusers? I have none. Neither will I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Recognize uh, what a wonderful thing has just happened. Uh, Sin has been washed out of your life. Go and sin no more. Don't live in rebellion to God any longer, but live according to His will. There are people here today, you have to make that decision. And if you want to be forgiven, you want your record cleansed, you want the blood of Jesus, you want to live for God, would you raise your hand right where you're seated? Say, pray for me. I'm a sinner. I know I need God today. I see this hand. God bless you. Others, be honest before God. Here's my hand. Pray for me. I know I'm a sinner. I need God. I fear judgment. I wisely fear hell. I want to be right with my Creator. Would you raise your hand? Join this honest heart. Say, pray for me. I'm not saved. Anyone else? Maybe you're a backslider. Maybe you have lived for God in times past. But as Peter said, like a dog, you've gone back to your vomit. Like a pig, you've gone back to your wallow. And he says, it would have been better that you had never been saved. That's a frightening thought. Because before you were saved, you're on your road to hell. And he says, it would have been better if you'd never gotten saved. You're here today. And you'd say, you know what? I don't want to live this way anymore. I fear God. Would you raise your hand, backslider, and say, pray for me. I want to get my heart right this morning. I want to live for God. I have the wisdom to fear Him. I know He loves me. I know He'll save me. I know His grace is available to me. But I fear Him. Would you raise your hand all over this building? Hallelujah. This one who raised your hand, just look up at me. Do you mean that? I want to give your life to Jesus today. I mean, completely release it to Him, right? I want you to come. Somebody's going to pray for you right here at the altar. Slip right out. He's going to pray with you. While heads are still bowed, eyes are closed... I want to challenge students this morning. Don't go back to your school and just play the game. You need to determine in your heart today that when you go back to school, you're not worrying about social repercussions. You're not worried about any of that. We've already talked about running with the crowd. We've already talked about the the little girly wars. We're going to talk a little bit more about some issues tonight. But you've already decided in your heart, you know what, I'm living for God. I'm a Christian. If that is so, I I challenge every student in this place to determine in your heart, you're going to go back into that school and from the get-go, you're going to be a witness. So I'm very timid. Don't worry about timid. We're talking about their eternal souls. Timidity won't be much of an excuse when that friend of yours is standing before the judgment seat of God and looks over at you and knows that you could have told them, but you failed to because you were timid. Timidity won't be much of a comfort at that point. There's a need that people all around you have, and that is the need to hear the gospel. And I challenge you, you can have revival in your school if you just won't back down. Revival will never happen without an army of students generating it. People that are concerned about souls. I want to enlarge this challenge to every person in this congregation. 
How can we sit back and allow those around us to go to hell without so much as a word? Without so much as a word. I believe God has given us armament and equipment for this war for souls. And if we'll believe God and we'll exercise what God has given us, God will do great things. We're going to stand together. We're going to sing this song uh,